they think there's one big judgment where all the lost and all the saved are brought together before God and God then separates the believers from the unbelievers. The unbelievers are cast into hell. The believers are brought into heaven. Nothing could be further from the truth. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 20 of the Revelation, and we've been looking at Christ's second coming and the binding of Satan for a thousand years. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, he explains the purpose of the millennium. We've seen so far that the millennium fulfills his promises to Israel, and it also fulfilled God's promises for mankind. But thirdly, it also proves Christ's promises to the church. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians of their future, and by application, our future, when someday in some way we as Christians will help judge the world. He asked her, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? In Romans, the fifth chapter, he says, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, born-again people, they will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So sprinkled all the way through the Gospels and through the epistles are these promises that when Jesus rules and reigns, so will his people. And so God promised the church in Revelation chapter 2, and then he applies it to all the churches when he says, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. You see the change there in typeset? That tells you it's an Old Testament quote. He's quoting Psalm 2, and he goes on to quote it further. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Psalm 2, one of the most important psalms in the whole Psalter. And if you know it, you know it is a promise that God the Son made, that God the Father made to God the Son, that his Son is going to rule, that he will give Jesus the nations as an inheritance. But here Jesus, when he speaks to this particular church and to all the churches, he applies it not just to himself, but to us. Paul says in 2 Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Christ in Revelation 3.21 again promises this co-regency. He who overcomes, and every true believer will overcome. You're not saved by overcoming. You're not saved by perseverance. When Jesus said the one who perseveres to the end will be saved, he is giving a mark of genuine conversion. You're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but if you've been made a new creature in Christ, you will persevere. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere, you will overcome. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It's all a part of the coming kingdom. In Revelation 5, verse 10, you have made them, speaking of the church, to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then in this chapter, in verse 4, the Scripture promises that we will reign with Christ for a thousand years. So what's the purpose of the millennium? 
One, first and foremost, to keep his promises to Israel. Number two, to prove what God originally had intended for man, had we not sinned. Number three, and that vindicates his goodness. Number three, to prove the promises that he made to the church. But number four, to prove the promises that he made to his son. The father has appointed the son to reign and to rule and to give the, na the nations of this world as his inheritance. Satan, if you remember, because of man's rebellion, became the God of this world. And so when Satan said there in the temptation, Matthew 4, Luke 4, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, that was a legitimate offer because Satan had the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus would not yield to that temptation. He saw that Satan's offer was nothing but sawdust and sand. And so God promised that he would give his son the nations of the world as he came to fulfill the purposes. And so we read in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Listen, we live in a day where the name of Jesus is mocked. People use it in vain. They make fun of Christian values. But a day is coming when God will give the honor to Jesus that he deserves for this reason also, because he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. The name which is above every name, the text says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Notice in addition, a fifth reason. God will prove through the millennium the answer to the prayers he has asked us to pray. Ever since the time of Abram, later named Abraham, God promised a kingdom. And Jesus himself, when he was on the earth, he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Most people pray that today and they have no idea what they're even praying. But as you read the church fathers and you read the New Testament, they understood precisely what that meant. That there will come a day when on earth, when Messiah rules and reigns, God's will will be done as it's being done this morning in heaven. And so during this thousand years, the devil has been locked up. Jesus is ruling and reigning. God has a purpose for the millennium. There are many more purposes, but those are some of the key. So Satan at the end of the thousand years is loose. That's Satan and his freedom. Second, there in your outline, let's think for a moment about Satan and his forces. Satan and his forces. We read now in verse seven. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So after being bound in the abyss, the bottomless pit for a thousand years, Satan is turned loose. He is uh, he's given freedom from the prison to wreak havoc. One famous theologian now dead and in heaven, Dr. Francis Schaeffer was asked the question, Dr. Schaeffer, why on earth would God ever let Satan out of the abyss after he had locked him there for a thousand years? And his response was, if you can tell me why he was released the first time, I can tell you why he will be released the second time. 
But listen, God knows the answer, and it's part of God's plan. I have the word must circled in verse 3 here in my Bible. It says he must, he must, he must be released. That brings me to the sixth reason as to why God has a millennial reign, and it is to prove the depravity of man's nature. The reign of the Messiah is going to show just how fallen and depraved man really is. Now, here's the devil. Certainly, he is incorrigible. He is unrepentant. He is stubborn as can be. But he is locked up for a thousand years. And yet, at the end of the thousand years, knowing that his end is short, he still is trying to push evil. And when he does so, he is going to really demonstrate how fallen and depraved we really are. You know, we sing that great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Some people say, well, I may be a sinner, but I'm certainly not a wretch. But the more you grow in Christ, And the more you see what God is like, the more you are able to embrace the truth of that hymn because it reflects Scripture. When Paul wants us to see what we are really like, what we have the capacity to do, he strings together in Romans 3 some Old Testament quotes, and he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now, during the thousand-year reign of Christ, Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. Satan will have zero ability, along with all of his demons, who are also likewise in the abyss, zero ability to tempt or deprive anyone towards evil. But when that thousand years is over and he is released, we will see the feigned obedience of many who had submitted to Jesus as Lord but had never truly embraced him and been converted by him. We will see the truth of Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I was doing the funeral, as far as I know, of a known unbeliever. I mean, when I would plead with him to receive Jesus, he would laugh at me. But then when the family needed a preacher, they called me. And one person there said, but he had such a good heart. And God would say, no, the heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so Satan will be released from his prison at the command of a sovereign God who rules and reigns on earth and above, in heaven above. The abyss will be opened. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Revelation 1 and verse 18, we studied it in the second message I think I did, or maybe the third, that the Lord Jesus has the keys of death and of Hades. So Satan is not the ruler of the abyss. God puts him in there, uses one of his angels. God allows him to be released. 
Neither is Satan the king of Hades. Today, if a man dies, he goes to Hades. He doesn't go to the lake of fire. He goes today to Hades, which is a place of torment. It's an awful place. But Satan doesn't rule there. Christ has the keys to Hades. In death in Hades, when we come next time to the next paragraph, is thrown into the lake of fire, and neither is Satan the ruler there. He's not the king of hell. He's not the king of Gehenna. Gehenna, hell, was prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan has never been there. Some people think, well, Satan is down there in hell, and, you know, he's got this pitchfork and these cloven hoofs and his horns coming out of his head and his forked tail, and he's, he's poking around and tormenting people. No, he is not tormenting anyone. He's never even been to hell yet. And when he gets there, he won't be in charge of it. He will be God's chief prisoner there. Adonai, the Lord God, he is the king of hell. He rules in heaven above, and Satan will be his prisoner along with all of his demons. Now, with that said, we read here in verse 8 that Satan will come out to deceive the nations, and that forces us to ask two critical questions. First, precisely who is it that the devil is deceiving? And secondly, why would anyone choose to yield to his deception? Well, let me first put you at ease by saying it won't be you if you are here today and you're born again. It won't be you, I can promise you. And even if you're not born again, it won't be you because you will never enter the millennial kingdom. Now think your way through this. This is not fluff and stuff. This is not padlum this morning. This is the meat of the word. And if you're ever going to grow up, we need to study the scriptures. There's so much foolish, fluffy preaching in our day that people don't know anything, and that's why they're so deceived in our day. So who is it, and why would someone respond? Well, let me give you a chart first. It's called amillennialism. Amillennialism, we spoke earlier, was largely uh, introduced in a, in a wide way through Augustine, and it was the seeds of Augustine who planted the seeds for Roman Catholicism. And Roman Catholicism popularized amillennialism. Millennial, of course, is the, from the Latin word. It means a thousand. And so we speak of the millennial, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Ah, the alpha means there is no millennium. And so today there is a lot of people who think there's no future for the Jewish folks and they are amillennialists. And if you were to take their theology and put it in a schematic, it might look like this. They would say the church is the new Israel. Because of Israel's disobedience, the church has replaced Israel. And that led to the anti-Semitism of all the popes. It led to the gross anti-Semitic statements of Calvin and Luther and even people in our own day. They say the church is the new Israel. We have replaced Israel, and so replacement theology. And so they would say, well, Jesus is ruling and reigning now. Well, he is. There's nothing that happens apart from God's sovereign, omnipotent power. But that does not dismiss that he will literally rule and reign, as the Old Testament prophets said, upon the earth. And as Jesus affirmed, and as the Revelation teaches. So they think, well, we're in the church age, so to speak, where the new Israel, when it ends, we don't know, but suddenly Jesus will come back, the second coming. He'll just take us to heaven. 
The only thing they see as future is uh, the church and all believers being removed from the earth. They think there's one big judgment where all the lost and all the saved are brought together before God, and God then separates the believers from the unbelievers. The unbelievers are cast into hell. The believers are brought into heaven. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is not the picture that God gives. But if you have a certain Calvinistic theology where it's not Israel who's being chosen in Romans 9, but people, then you have to be consistent. and You cannot plainly, grammatically interpret the book of Revelation. So for the amillennialists, the whole book of Revelation is history with the exception of the second coming and where God's people are brought into heaven and the lost are brought into hell. Now understand, the Protestant reformers, many of them, were saved out of Catholicism. And they certainly put a different spin on some of the Roman Catholic doctrines, and rightly so. They said, well, baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't wash away sin, but it is a covenant. And so they continued with infant baptism. Uh, They said that the church is not the new Israel. That is this organized church we call Roman Catholics that was filled with unbelievers in their day and many wicked popes who said the worst, most hateful things against the Jews. I've quoted many of them earlier in this series for you. No, it's those who are born again who are God's people today. And so in their doctrine of last things, God's done with the Jew. It's all about the church. And they just put different spins on different things. And so they uh, just see one big judgment. That's not what God's word says. Read it. There are four judgments in the future. Think your way through this this morning. There are four judgments that are still out in the future. The next one is through the catching up of the church, and it's what we call the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, after that door in heaven is open, the church is caught up and brought in, we are going to be evaluated. He says, for we, he includes himself in this, Paul, a born-again believer, an apostle, for we, must all appear before the judgment of the seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, if you've been through the discovery class, and that is a great discipleship course, we go through this in tremendous detail, and we look at the implications of this judgment. This is a judgment the Bible teaches takes place in heaven. It's not to determine if you go to heaven. That is determined before you take your last breath and your heart stops beating. What you decide about Jesus today will determine where you will go to heaven or hell when you die. But this is a judgment in heaven for believers in heaven to see how they will be rewarded throughout eternity and also during the millennial reign of the Messiah. Paul describes this judgment in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The church is not built on the pope. When Peter says, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, he's not referring to Peter. You can build that from the Latin translation. You are Peter, a stone, and upon this bedrock, referring to himself, I'll build my church. The foundation is Christ. And he says, now if any man builds on the foundation, which is gold, silver, and precious stones, those are three very beautiful, costly things. But then he gives another category, wood, hay, and straw. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed or tested 
with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. That is, whether it is of the quality of wood, hay, and straw, or the quality of gold, silver, and precious stones. If any man's work which he has built upon it, the foundation remains, that is, if it can withstand fire, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. So if you've been through the discovery class, they walk through some examples of those things that God would call good, gold, silver, and precious stone kind of works versus futile and selfish works that would consider and constitute wood, hay, and straw. And at the judgment, when God tests our works as saved people with fire, some will be saved, yet so is through fire. That is, they will lose their reward, though they will certainly inherit heaven. And so the first judgment that is still in the future is the judgment for believers. There's a second judgment, and it's a judgment for Jewish people. At the end of the seven years, there will be Jewish people who have made it through the tribulation, who have survived the tribulation, just like there will be Gentile people who will make it through the tribulation. Not everyone will die. The vast majority of the world will die during this time, but not everyone. So Jesus will gather all the Jews, and so there's the judgment of Jewish survivors. And so in Ezekiel chapter 20, he speaks about the house of Israel, all the Jewish people, and how they will pass under the judgmental rod of the Messiah. Let me read it to you. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So Messiah will purge out all the rebels when the Jewish people across the planet, most of whom will be living in Israel, when they stand before Messiah, God will purge out the believing Jews from the unbelieving Jews. And only believing Jews will be able to enter the kingdom of God. Because unless you've received Yeshua as Lord, unless you are born again, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And so before Messiah can reign and set up his kingdom, since only believers can enter into that kingdom, as Paul will say in Romans 9, they are not all Israel who are Israel. That is, everyone who is physically descended from Abraham is not spiritually descended from him. That's what Jesus said in John 8. If you were truly sons of Abraham, you'd do the deeds of Abraham. You would show that you had had a new birth from above, that you were a different kind of person. And many of the Jews during the tribulation will die. Zechariah says two-thirds of all the Jewish people on the earth will die. There are many unbelieving Jews in the world today. You go to Tel Aviv, that's the homosexual capital of the world. You think San Francisco is gay. You haven't seen anything. There is a wickedness and a rebelliousness. Only about 35% of the Jewish people are orthodox and really fear God there in the great country of Israel today. But that's going to change during the tribulation. Some will receive Jesus is Lord, and so by the time the second coming happens, those who are Israel, born again, will be separated out from unbelieving Israel. Isaiah 60 says, then all your people 
will be righteous. Those are the only ones who will enter the kingdom. That's the context of Isaiah 60. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Now there's the third judgment. He'll judge believers in heaven. He'll judge Jewish people on the earth, those who are alive at the second coming. He'll also judge the Gentile survivors, those Gentile nations of the world who have survived. And Jesus describes that in Matthew 25, verses 11 to 45. He'll gather all the Gentile believers of the world, and he'll separate, the Bible says, the sheep from the goats. And Christ is clear, again, that no unbelievers can enter the kingdom. Read Matthew 13, the kingdom parables. And in that chapter, he describes how he'll separate the tear from the wheat, the good fish from the bad fish. Zero unbelievers will enter the kingdom of God. Well, how will God show those who are legitimately his and those who are not by their fruits? It's the theme that runs through Scripture. You will know them by their fruits. You're not saved by your fruits, but if you are saved, you'll have evidence. And so if you remember, he extends an invitation to those on his right, that is his sheep, to enter the kingdom that he has prepared since the creation of the world. Let me read it to you. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, and the Lord will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? Now, the basis of their entrance into the kingdom is how they treated the king. And so the statement that the king, Jesus, makes prompts them, the sheep, to ask a question. Listen, and when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. The king will say, the way you treated my brethren, brethren, brothers, is used in three ways in scripture. Sometimes just generically like of an unbelieving Jew. Sometimes it's used of a born again Christian. And sometimes it's used of a believing Jew. And Jesus said, whatever you did to the least of me, these my brethren. Remember, there's three groups of people in this great parable. There's the sheep, believing Gentiles. There's goats, unbelieving Gentiles. And then there's this third group, my brethren. Now, we take these verses all the time. We say, "Mm, I want to make sure I'm saved. I better have a prison ministry, or I better get involved in feeding hungry people. And those are all good things to do, but it has nothing to do with this passage. He is talking about how people, Gentiles, will identify with Jews during this seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. The sheep will stand with Israel even if it costs them their lives. The goats will stand with the Antichrist, and the worst anti-Semitic behavior in the history of the world is going to unfold. Listen, uh, an anti-Semite today is giving evidence that they are treating God's brethren wrong, that they are an unbeliever. 
And so the goats will align with the world dictator and they will be removed from the earth and cast into eternal punishment. The Bible tells us that those who have not trusted in Christ to cleanse them from their sins will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Have you made a decision for Christ yet? If not, don't put it off any longer. We encourage you to visit the Search the Scriptures website, searchthescriptures.org, and click on the Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend button and settle once and for all your eternal destination. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478, And for today's message, ask for program REV59. Tomorrow, the conclusion of the final rebellion. Join us then as we search the scriptures.